Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to How To Money, a financial education podcast for young Australians aimed at opening up the conversation around money. In each episode, your host, Kate Campbell, brings in a variety of guests to explore everything from buying shares to starting your own business, all with the aim of kickstarting your personal finance journey. Just a quick reminder that everything we cover in this podcast is for financial education purposes only, and we are not giving you any advice. If you do want advice, please seek the help of a qualified and competent professional and do some research. Remember, it's your money, so take control. Lacey, welcome onto the How To Money podcast today. Thank you so much for having me, Kate. I'm delighted to be here. Now, we've spoken a few times, but never on the How To Money podcast, so I'm excited to introduce you to my audience and also the conversation topic, which is something I have also spoken a lot about, but not on the How To Money podcast. So Lacey, are you able to just give us a a quick 30-second elevator pitch to who you are and what you do during the day? Well, interestingly, I'm actually a chemical engineer. You probably don't have too many of them on your show. But during my life, my mum taught me about money and I started saving half of every dollar I'd ever earned when I was 10, started investing when I was 19, and I got to financial independence in my early 30s. And while doing that, I learned that not everybody learned about money. Same as the reason you're doing this podcast. So now I have Money School, which I've been running for 12 years, which includes a book. And you can check out my TEDx talk on financial independence if you like. And I'm all about giving people money skills. I love that. And I don't think I've had a TEDx speaker on the podcast. So there we go. Oh, lucky me. <laughs> this is probably one of the most viewed in Australia ones. When I had a look, it's got quite a lot of views. Yeah, interestingly, I always thought it was my mum sitting there just clicking view again and again and again, but I don't think she could have done it that many times. No, it's it's getting close to a million views, uh, which is really lovely, I think, because the idea, which we're going to talk about a lot today, really resonates with people at the moment. Yeah, and so let's outline a few things to start with before we get into the meat of this episode, just because we haven't really touched on this topic so much before, but listeners might be aware of the concept financially independent or financial independence retire early movement. I know there's often clickbait articles in the paper. I read one just this morning. Are you able to just give us a general idea on what financial independence is and what the FIRE movement is? So very quickly, the idea of financial independence is divorcing your time from the money you need to live on. So the idea is you take the money that you're earning from your wages, you buy assets, and then those assets pay you. And when the amount that those assets pay you is enough to cover your living costs, you don't have to work anymore. And I think that that's the fire part, the financial independence part. The RE, the retire early, is the bit where everyone gets a little bit confused because a lot of people go, well, I don't want to retire. 
the point is not necessarily that you retire. It's just that work becomes optional. You become time rich. So you get to choose if you want to work or not. You get to choose what you want to work on. And you still know you're going to have a roof over your head and you're going to have food in your tummy and all that stuff. That's the point of the fire movement. And people are getting really excited about it, I think, in Australia. Lots of clickbait articles, like you say. Because it does sound delightful, the idea that you don't have to go to work. You go to work on what you want to, when you want to, because you choose it. And I think the last two years have made us all realise we do want to live life a bit more on our own terms and not necessarily on the terms of our employer or the terms of society. I totally agree. I think everyone has also had a bit of a shock with that, how financially vulnerable they might feel. Worried about jobs that disappear overnight and how long it's going to take to get government support and whole careers just becoming impossible to do in this environment. So I think there's that elevated sense of needing something other than just working as a way to support yourself. And how did you stumble across the concept so early on of being financially independent? Well, this is the irony. Do you know I only found out the term FIRE in 2018, late to the party? I think I'd always known about the financial independence part because I'd been learning about it from my mother. So when I was young, my parents got divorced and my mum didn't have much money. Typical single mum story, you know, 30 grand a year, two kids, shoestring kind of thing. Always felt safe and loved, so didn't know we didn't have much money. But she was very conscious of how money was used because she was an accountant and she'd seen what people were doing with their investments. And she was like, wow, I wonder if we could do that. So yeah, she taught me how that works, the idea of buying assets. And it started with the traditional just stick your money in the bank and earn interest because back then interest was 10%. So it was really attractive, but she gave me a lot of education along the way, took me to seminars and gave me rich dad, poor dad and all that kind of stuff and really encouraged me. So that's how I learned about the idea of financial independence, but I didn't really have a term like fire in mind. I didn't really think I'm doing this for the purpose of being able to quit work or because I want time off. I did it because I thought it was wasteful to spend money I didn't need to spend. So because I'd been in that habit of saving 50% and I didn't want to just leave it in the bank because interest rates were dropping, I started getting into investing in property and shares, wanting the returns from those, and they started generating returns for me through dividends and through rent. And so that's when I sort of went, oh, wow, this is how financial independence actually works. And it only really occurred to me that I was reaching it as I had my first child. Yeah, it's interesting. So many people did work towards financial independence before there was a label to it. I remember talking to some friends and family and they're like, I was financially independent before it was cool. (laughs) Exactly. And it is, it's amazing too. As you start talking about this, I'm sure you've had this experience, Kate. As you start talking about it more, you find all these people who are going about their day jobs, doing all the normal stuff. They look perfectly normal. You wouldn't know. And they are financially independent. This is happening all over the place. It's just, like you say, getting a bit more mainstream coverage now and people are going, hey, I didn't know that was a possibility, which is what I love about podcasts like this because people are getting introduced to an idea that they might not otherwise have heard of. Yeah, and it's interesting you touched on like people might be financially independent but you'd never know. And I think even just people sharing their stories like you did through Money School and the blogs that have popped up that never used to be around, like people didn't talk that openly about their finances and that they were financially independent. I think that's sort of changed the perspective slightly because we now know, oh, there are people that are financially independent and here's the path they took. Exactly, and it's nice that it's getting spoken about because it was a taboo topic for a long time still has a little bit of taboo in some areas and some families might feel that. But the more we talk about it, like you say, the more people think, hey, I could do that too. And I'd love to see that because the more people who are financially independent, the more people can work on problems they really want to solve. And we've got some big ones. So we need all that brain power. Absolutely. And when you said you didn't have sort of financial independence in mind originally, and you were just sort of going about saving and learning to invest in everything, did you have any 
numbers or goals you're working towards or is it just keep working, keep saving, keep investing and it will just sort of like magically work out to what I want to do in the future? Yeah, much more the latter. I just was plotting, to be blunt. Uh, So initially it was, I'm just going to try and buy a property every couple of years. So I bought my first one at 19, next one at 21, next one at 23. So that was sort of like, I'll just keep buying while it makes sense and while the property market was going up and while I had a really good salary. That was the big thing, which I think maybe is a bit different today. I had a high degree of confidence in my earning capacity and I focused on increasing my earning as much as possible. So those were the two things that I kind of did, just put it through with, well, I've got money, I'll buy more assets, um, moved into shares after buying those first three properties and then carried on with both, but focused on that increasing income. And it was just a case of I'm used to, because I have that habit and it's just set up automatically of saving 50%, that I got there quickly. But I actually hadn't done any maths until I was taking time off for my first child and I was sitting down looking at how much we spent each year. Now, both of my husband and I were engineers We made a lot of money, but we didn't spend a lot. And that was just, I guess, our very similar cultures, very similar values in our families about not wasting money. And it was at that point that I did the math of, well, how much do we spend each year? And then I was looking at what was coming in from the dividends and rent and went, oh, that would cover our living costs. Oh, wow. You know, so it was a bit of an aha moment because I was trying to work out how long I could afford to stay home with my first child. And the answer was, well, indefinitely, if the dividends and rent stayed up. So that was quite fascinating, I think. And that was the first time that I realized that was really possible, but not really targeted. I'm really impressed with people who have these goals and they work towards and they're super committed. I just went the very plot along, work on what I could and just keep following what I knew worked for me. And if someone's listening right now and going, hey, Lacey, sounds like an amazing journey you took, but I cannot buy a property at 19. I maybe don't have a high income. I'm not in a position to invest. What do you usually recommend people starting with? So I think it's really important to acknowledge that whatever's happening to you right now is not going to be your circumstances forever. If you can't save right now and you can't invest right now, do not beat yourself up. Often that will be circumstantial. It's not a problem with your personality. It's not a problem with you as an inherent being. This happens all the time. You know, I saw that with my mum. She had a period of about 10 years where she just could not save a dime. She was, I say a dime, even though I'm Australian, but, you know, she was raising two kids and we were on a shoestring. She couldn't afford it. That happens all the time and it's not your fault. What you want to do is be prepared for when you do have some money. So you've got your buffer fund set up. So you've got something that's sitting there in cash to get you through emergencies. Once you do get some extra, and it might be six months away, it might be six years away, but be ready to then buy something. I think for most people, things like shares are going to be more accessible than property very early because you can get in with as little as $500. It makes sense to do it with small amounts and you don't need debt. Property, it's an interesting question. I think I still like property investing and if I was starting again, I'd still look there because I have a really high degree of confidence in my earning capacity. But if you don't, if you're worried about your earning, if you're worried about being able to cover the mortgage, if the thought of a half point interest rate rise terrifies you, then stick to something that doesn't need debt. And I would pick shares as the first port of call in most cases. And something I do suggest to listeners, even if they're just getting started and they don't have the money to put aside, is just educating yourself because there are so many resources out there nowadays that are free and high quality. It's so much easier to learn the basics than it was probably when you got started 10, 15 years ago. Absolutely. Financial education is everywhere now. When I started doing it with money school 12 years ago, everyone was like, what's that? I don't know what you're talking about. But you're exactly right. Gathering that education through that period where my mum couldn't save, she was always learning about this. She was studying what her clients were doing. Like I said, she was taking me to seminars where we learned about quality, undervalued assets, um, reading books. And that meant as soon as she was able to save $1,000, she bought her shares instantly. 
She wasn't sitting around wondering, which broker do I go with or uh, which share do I buy? She has already poised herself to attack that situation. So she's ready to go as soon as she's ready. And that meant that at 49, she started investing and she got to financial independence at 63. So pretty inspiring. And it kind of shows you that it's never too late for me, in my opinion. Like it's so long as you're willing to commit to it, but the more you can do in that lead up, like you say, get that education under your belt, think about what you're going to do, have a plan. As soon as you have the opportunity, you can leap on it. You're not then waiting to catch up. I think that's a great piece of advice because many of our listeners are uni students right now or just getting their first jobs in their 20s. So it is the perfect time. You've got that extra time to spend educating and getting yourself ready for when you are in that position. Exactly. And it's time well spent. It's an investment in yourself, as we'd like to say, because that knowledge will stay with you. And the more you understand about something, the less likely you are to make knee-jerk reactions. You'll still make mistakes. That's the other thing that's really important. You're not going to avoid mistakes, nor should you try to just do everything perfectly because you'll never finish it (laughs) or maybe never even start. (laughs) It's important to have a go and acknowledge you'll make mistakes, but your best chance of minimising those mistakes is having lots of knowledge under your belt and feeling more comfortable with what you're doing. And something else I really want to ask you, because we haven't spoken for a little while, is How have your views on financial independence changed the last few years? Because you've been in this position for a while now, you've had the experience of having work being optional and getting to choose what you do with your time, even like just the last two years, last three years since you've been financially independent. How have your views changed? It's interesting how grateful you feel, of course, and how lucky I have felt. I have felt almost like a survivor's guilt when I've seen a lot of people losing their jobs and being really worried. I think it's one of those times where you I'm very grateful to past Lacey and to past Adam, my husband, for the decisions that we made. But having had that happen, I think what I've seen is a general movement towards this accepting that having a wage from one job is less likely for people and they're understanding that consulting and contracting and itinerant work is more likely and that work is less certain. So I guess I see it as more important than it ever was before. I feel like it has to become more mainstream. People have to understand it more. It has also changed my views on things like the universal basic income. I think probably 2017, I read the Rutger Bregman book, Utopia for Realists, that analysed the data on that and looked at that impact on people's IQ from financial stress. And I hadn't realised that your IQ dropped by 13 points when you're financially stressed. That's a lot. That's, yeah. 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 So if you've got it, like an average IQ is 100, like 13 points is significant. And it's been tested in developing countries and also in Western countries. And it's the same. And it's just what level you hit that stress at. So when I think about how collectively stressed we are at the moment, we're all going to be making less effective decisions because our cognitive capacity is reduced. So I would like to see. I don't know, a trend towards doing a trial on universal basic income to try and alleviate that stress so people make better decisions. Because it's not a case of poor people make bad decisions. It's when you're poor, you will make bad decisions. You and me both. If we felt poor, we would do a bad job of our choices and not just in money in all areas of life. So I think that systemic change is something I've become more aware of over these last few years, more so than the individual responsibility, it's all on you kind of approach. I think there's got to be some of that. You do have to take responsibility for your decisions, but we need to recognise systemic problems too. Yeah, I was reading a financial wellness study that was done by one of the banks the other day, and it was saying that over like 50% of financial wellness or the lack of is attributed to socioeconomic conditions and things that people can't necessarily do anything about. Um, And the other stuff was more things like financial education and feeling confident with your financial decisions. But that was much less of a contributor to financial wellness than the other bits. Absolutely. And I think we underplay that sometimes too much when I see 
sometimes it's it's people trying to get you motivated. They're doing it with a good intent, saying, take responsibility for your decisions and you can do it and blah, blah, blah. Yep, in most cases, there's going to be a degree of that personal responsibility. But like you say, we've got to acknowledge the environment. And that's why I'm so hot on. If you can't save right now and you can't invest right now, do not beat yourself up. That will change. It's just where you are right now. Yeah. And if someone's looking right now and going, is financial independence even possible for me? Or is it a bit of a pipe dream? And would I just get disappointed trying to get to that point? Should I just go with the typical wait until retirement? What would you be your suggestions to sort of working out? Is it even a path worth taking? Well, my opinion is that the strategies that people use to get to financial independence, which is keep some of everything you earn and then put some of that into assets, are only ever going to be positive for you. If you don't get to the point where you're financially independent, having some of those assets is still going to be really good when you reach retirement age. It's never going to be a disadvantage. You're going to have potentially a better retirement as a result. So I don't see any reason why anyone wouldn't try. The other thing I'd also say is none of us have got a crystal ball. So let's say you're in the process of buying assets and you just catch a lucky tailwind and you see 100% price growth in a few years. It happens. You can suddenly find yourself in a position where you're going to get to financial independence that you didn't think was possible. But if you hadn't started early, it's too late by the time that goes. You know, I think about my first property. I bought a $103,000 ugly apartment. It was hideous. And, you know, I would have expected it to go up maybe 10 or 20 grand in value over a few years, but it didn't. It nearly doubled in price. I was just lucky with my timing. But you can't know that in advance. So you can't wait till that happens. And I think anyone who started investing last year when the prices were down and has seen this 20 to 30% growth has had a bit of a kickstart, you know, but you wouldn't have known that was coming. Very few economists predicted that. <laughs> so don't don't wait because you go, oh, it's impossible. Start because it is possible. You could get there. And even if you don't get there, is it going to set you up better? Most likely it will. And it's even if it's just focusing on that first step of getting your emergency fund sorted, that is going to be one step more towards you being financially confident and being able to deal with the emergencies that life throws at you rather than not even getting started. Because I often see content where people are talking about becoming financially independent. And if you go into the comments section, which you never should do really, um, <laughs> you get responses like, oh, but it's not possible. Or like, why try? Because like, it's a completely unachievable goal. Or why try? Because of inflation or insert 101 other reasons why it's not worth even getting started. I often think that even if you do take some steps, even if you don't hit the elusive like million dollar goal that some people will set, you're still going to be in a much better position than you were before you started. That small steps approach is really important. I know it's great for the headlines where someone says, oh, I bought this investment and it made me a millionaire overnight. Those are really rare. Most people who get to that point have done lots of little steps along the way. Like I say, if you don't start with that first step, you don't have a chance. You're not even giving yourself the opportunity. So if you can, give it a shot. And also acknowledge that, hey, if it doesn't work out, what's your backup plan? I mean, the backup plan at the moment is you just carry on doing what you were going to do, work until retirement, then, hey, you didn't lose anything, did you? (laughs) You're just doing the same thing you were going to do. Why not try something different? And if someone's listening and they're going, oh, this this concept sounds kind of interesting. I want to learn a bit more Um, where do I even start? How do I know what I need to invest and save? Where would you recommend starting? Oh, there's so much information out there. In fact, it's probably overwhelming for most people the first time they look. So look, there's a couple of very common points of call for most things that are to do with FIRE, things like Mr. Money Mustache in the States, and we've got the Aussie FIRE bug over here, and there's a plethora of podcasts. I really like Captain FIRE, for example, but they are often 
very dedicated to a specific way of doing it. You know, there's a very common theme in most FIRE communities, which is ETFs, exchange-traded funds, all the way, and don't talk to me about property. Whereas I think that's kind of exclusionary. So I wouldn't necessarily encourage people to just pick a couple of outlets and then just follow those people wrote from the get-go and do nothing else because not every plan is right for everybody. You need to have a little bit of flex room and and something that's right for for you might not be right for me and vice versa. So I would encourage people to read widely. And the thing that I think that's amazing at the moment is the plethora of female voices that are coming out because I think that's been missing in the finance world for a while. So there's some fantastic people to have a look at there. I would recommend Daniela Kuyi, which I know you've promoted as well, her great books on shareplicity. Mel Brown's got some great stuff. She's on the money. There's some fantastic resources out there that have a slightly different view from the traditional ones. But consume widely. Don't just take it as I must do this because so-and-so said so. No matter how good they are, they don't know you. They don't know your personal situation. They don't know your tolerances. They don't know your risk appetite. They don't know what you enjoy. So consume widely and then use some critical thinking in your own sort of context. And there's so many different resources out there that you can pretty much find someone who is in the same profession as you. So if you look hard enough, you'll find a teacher working towards financial independence or a a nurse or a doctor. Like there's really specific niches for every different subsection in the community now, which is amazing. Yeah, it is lovely. And, you know, I remember finding out about Physician on Fire the first time and like apparently doctors are terrible with money as an average. I'm not not every doctor, but like apparently because they're so used to big salaries, they often spend a lot and then any fluctuation causes them a huge amount of harm. But that's a particular psychology for a career that it is useful to find a community of like-minded souls to sort of talk about that and how do you change it. But looking at everywhere you can, anywhere that you find it interesting, you know, listen to the podcasts, read the books. There's so many books. There's so many blogs. I know that's overwhelming sometimes, but just pick one. Pick one and if you don't like it, you don't have to follow it, okay? It's fine. (laughs) Yeah, and even just reading one thing will generate a whole list of questions where you can lead to the next point of research and the next point. So you don't have to open 10, 100 tabs at once, which I know happens to a lot of us that go down the financial independence rabbit hole at the beginning. I do remember reading like hundreds and hundreds of different articles. Yeah, well, and this is the problem. It creates this analysis paralysis sensation because for every opinion you'll find, you'll find the opposite one. So, you know, for everyone who says ETFs, there'll be someone going, no, you must do listed investment companies instead. Why would you do an exchange traded fund? And suddenly you go, oh, ooh, do I trust this advice? Which one do I do? You've just got to accept that that's part of it. I like to work with Parkinson's law for that. I like that whole, the work will take the amount of time you allow for it. So if you're going to read, and you, go, you know you want to make a decision at the end, like I'm going to pick a type of investment or I'm going to pick a type of share or whatever you're going to do, give yourself a time limit. Do all the research you can up until that time limit, but then you make the decision because you've got enough information at that point. And, of course, you can keep reading. You can keep researching. But if you allow yourself a week, it'll take a week. If you give yourself six months, it'll take six months. <laughs> so be reasonable about how long you give yourself for that analysis and that decision-making before you at least try. And if you start small, not a big risk, right? Yeah. And a big part of financial independence is maximizing the time frame you have to invest. And so if you get stuck for years on that very first step of choosing a brokerage account or what do I actually invest in, it can really set you back. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that also the damage that can happen when you make a mistake can do that as well. There's a lot of things that will dent your confidence early. Just accept that you're going to make mistakes except that you're just going to make the best choice you've got at that time. And that apart from property, most things are fairly easily reversible these days. So if you want to change broker, 
you can do it in, you know, a couple of days. And you're like, you can even open up another brokerage account with another company and keep the other one. You know, like we spend a lot of time, I think, on decisions that we don't need to spend that much time on that really rob us of the important decisions, which are more philosophical for ourselves. Where do we want to go and what do we believe in and, and what's important for us? And working towards financial independence, I mean, there's reasons why not everyone becomes financially independent over their lifetime. And it can come down to like those socioeconomic factors we talked about. It can come down to education and knowledge. But I think sometimes it can come down to sacrifice and whether people are willing to do the work. And I'd like to know if you have seen people in the community, like after people that have written in after reading your book, about different challenges that they've had to come working towards financial independence or potentially some of the sacrifices they've had to make along the way. Mm, and sacrifice is important. I think often when we talk about sacrifice, we frame it from this place of doing without, giving up things. And I have found what happens for most people who turn their stories around that have emailed me afterwards is they sort of switch their mindset a little bit and it's a bit of that psychology stuff, rather than thinking about if I'm cutting things out, it's the same as when you're dieting, oh, I can't eat that anymore, and then suddenly you go and binge on it. It's more making it a choice. And if you focus on waste, I think the more you can focus on waste, because it's such a popular topic at the moment, we want to become less wasteful, we want to consume less, do less damage to the planet. It's exactly the same with your money. So if you can switch your mindset over to this focused on not wasting this precious resource, which is my time, and I've exchanged my time for money, therefore I shouldn't waste the money and prioritizing your spending. That's where I've seen the biggest shifts. I think a lot of people who realized they were spending to fill a hole of meaningfulness, you know, there was something missing in their life or they were just bored or it was habit or they were sitting at home in lockdown and feeling lonely and they just wanted someone to knock on their door and give them a parcel. You know, those things that where they spent the money to achieve something that wasn't about what the money bought and they realized it didn't work. So where most of those stories I've seen turn around are those ones that go, I just want to do the best I can with this resource. And then then they go, oh, well, I wouldn't want to just waste it on some crap I've bought online if I don't need it because I exchanged my time for that money. Well, you know, how many hours did I spend to have that thing? Why would I waste that? And I think it's often a crisis that drives people to that. Often I find people have come to money school, particularly to the courses. The book is, of course, lots of people will read the book, but um, the courses it's usually about they've had one of the the big five Ds, you know, they talk about divorce, death, disease, disaster, and redundancy. That's a creative use of the fifth D, I know. <laughs> but they've had some massive crisis and it's made them just rethink their priorities, what, what's important to me, similar to what happened to me when I decided it was important to redesign my life. So, yeah, often that's that kind of thing that motivates people to come through. But the stories are just so inspiring, people who've gotten out of debt, people who've escaped domestic violence situations and turned around. I had a lovely lady the other day who I know personally, I didn't realise she'd read my book, but she came up and said, because of you, I've gone and bought a house and I'm going to go and create a home for my child with me. And it's, that sort of stuff's lovely. It's very nice, very warm, fuzzy feelings over that. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's quite interesting because we often don't realise those turning points until we look back and then we go, oh, yeah, this is where I changed my mind. And sometimes you do need that big crisis, as you mentioned, like the five Ds. But I guess as a young person, you're not always going to have that big crisis in your 20s. And so I think for a lot of people in that age group, it's just that education and maybe reading stories or listening to stories about other people who have done it. And then you have to find that why for why you're working towards financial independence for yourself. Yeah. And understanding why it doesn't get spoken about is really important when you're that age. Because you kind of think, look, if this was important, wouldn't they have taught me this at school? Or my mum and dad would have taught me about this. And often it's just that there's a lot of people who don't know that this option exists first of all. And second of all, we're not great consumers. 
people who really don't want to waste their money aren't the favorite people of marketers. So there's not a lot of money spent on trying to get to us. <laughs> we don't even go into lots of debt. So even banks don't particularly, you know, talk about financial independence as a goal because there's not a lot in it for them. So you've just got to keep in mind that some of these options aren't put in front of you because they're not commercially viable for people to promote. And so I think that's that when you're looking for that education, being aware that sometimes the best things can't be found in the mainstream stuff because they don't make a lot of money for people who are in there. And I guess that's why so many independent like blogs and websites have popped up with these voices because it's just kind of an individual thing sharing their journey. It's not a commercial enterprise. Exactly. And it is nice. I do laugh though whenever anyone says they're fired and they're running a blog. I'm like, you're running a blog. You're not actually retired. You know, like you can call it a hobby, but <laughs> people get really intense about that, especially in the US. Like, oh, you're not actually retired. You're running a website. Yeah. Yeah, and that's why I guess that that shift I think we need to accept as a community a shift away from the RE. Like retire early just means you are time rich. That's all it means. And you choose. If you want to blog, if you want to work 50 hours a week on your blog, go nuts. Like it's only going to benefit other people. It's lovely to have those lessons out there. So I think it's so long as you're not giving any dodgy advice along with it, it's great. And most people I think are pretty cagey about not giving anything that constitutes financial advice. So of course, grain of salt to everybody and uh, analyzing why they might recommend a specific product or service to you. But um so much great stuff comes out of people being free to spend their time on these kinds of things that aren't commercial enterprises. So we get all this great learning. I think Vicki Robbins a really interesting example of that. She's like the original, you know, the <laughs> Your Money or Your Life book that was published in 1992 with Joe Dominguez. And she, they talk in there about that concept of fire. It's the first time it went in the mainstream. And she really lives her life, I think, by that giving back philosophy. So some cool role models to check out. Yeah. If you go down that Google rabbit hole and even just looking at searching for fire resources or fire books, you'll find so many different things. And you mentioned the topic of time rich, which I know you talk about quite a bit in your book, Money School. What does that mean to you? And what could it mean if we want to explore how we can maximize our time in our own lives? Mm. For me, that's what's happened through my process. The becoming financially independent was nice, but the realization that financial independence actually equals time rich for me. Once you're financially independent, you are by definition time rich because you get to choose how you spend your time. You don't have to spend it working. So that's that shift, I think, away from this idea of retire early. It's not about retiring early. It's not about sitting on a beach drinking pina coladas for the rest of your life. You'll be bored within a few months. Feel free to try. <laughs> but pretty much anyone who's dedicated enough to get there doesn't get doesn't uh, find that entertaining. They want to do something with their time. They want to add value somehow to society, whether that's raising their family at home or volunteering. But that's the point of being time rich. You choose. You get to decide how you're going to spend your time and however you want to do it is up to you. If you want to continue in the exact same job, go right ahead. You're still time rich because you can drop it any time you want to. You don't have to be there. It's so empowering, that sense of getting to choose how you spend your time. It's I think that's been the biggest shift for me. So recognising that the point of money is that it buys your time and you get to decide how you spend that time because it ain't coming back. It's non-renewable. So you better make sure you make the most of it. Yeah, I love it. And I think that's a really good motivator. If you are in your 20s right now and you're looking for that internal motivation, if you don't have a crisis to turn you around, I think becoming time rich and having more choice and opportunity in your life is a really good motivator to start saving and investing and educating yourself in this area. Yeah, absolutely. And if that's what it takes, if it's the dangling carrot, if that works for you instead of the, the big sticks of the five Ds, then that's great. You've got a head start. Let's hope you don't need one of the five Ds. But I had a few of the five Ds hit me. And so I was like, okay, 
I'll take the message of the universe. You're right, it doesn't often happen in your 20s. And I guess the other thing that can be really challenging, especially as someone in their 20s, is trying to balance current you versus future you because it's super hard to imagine my life in my 60s and upwards. And it's hard to think about I'm saving and investing for that future version of me when, oh, I could use that money for XYZ item or trip right now. How do you kind of weigh up between what you spend today and what you put aside for the future? Mm, This is a really deeply personal question. Everyone will have a different answer, but I'll share for you mine. Because I have always saved 50%, I say always, since I was 10, I have saved half of every dollar that's come in. I just put that money aside. So it never even occurs to me that all of that money is mine. Half of it's for future me. Whatever's left is mine to spend with impunity. I don't guilt myself out about any of it. So long as I've got food, roof, transport, clothes, anything else I spend, I go nuts. So I think if you can sort of divide this idea of once you save for future you and you've done that investing, you've done that bit, you can have fun with the rest. And I think that's where the fire community sometimes becomes very unappealing because there's this extreme frugality in some areas of it where people say, oh, well, I'm going to save 70 or 90% of my income and live on this tiny amount. And yes, you can do that. But I guess I feel, although life is the longest thing we will all technically do, it's still, you only get one shot at it. I would not go for a highly frugal, no fun at all feeling of being deprived because I don't think it's sustainable. I don't think it motivates people for as long enough. You know, So I think you're going to spend the time to earn the money. You do have to have some fun. You do have to enjoy it and don't beat yourself up on it. Enjoy it. Milk it for all it's worth and enjoy those memories. So I will spend the first major travel that I did for um, three months around South America. We dropped 30 grand on it. I don't regret that at all. And I would do it again in a heartbeat because those memories and those experiences were worth every penny and I'd already saved for future me. So present me needs to have some fun too so that future me has got something to look back on. (laughs) That's how I think about it. Yeah, and some of those things that you can do in your 20s and 30s and 40s, you might not be able to do, like the world trips in your 70s or 80s. And so just because you'll have all the money in your 80s doesn't mean you can do all the things you want to do with that money. Exactly. And that's why I think mini retirements have a place in this discussion on your progress to getting to five, because sometimes you can be so dedicated to that goal and then you might have five or 10 years working your guts out, saving like a demon and investing and then you're there. But if you had no fun in that time, what was the point? Like you could go under a bus, something bad could happen, you know, like the world could get shut down in your travel plans, <laughs> go with it. So if you know that's not going to be sustainable for you, if you can factor in some small breaks and I like the mini retirement idea where it's a month to 12 months usually where you take some time off work because you've saved up enough money and your assets are growing, you can get some of that enjoyment still. And then even if you don't get to fight, if something falls over and you're never going to get there, you still had some fun. You've got to balance those out. And it's different for every individual. But my experience is for most people, a sense of deprivation is not going to sustain behavior for very long. I love the concept of mini retirements. And I don't know if that was the topic of your TED talk or that might yeah. be. Yeah. 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 That was why we should all think about financial independence and mini retirements. So, yeah, that's the one. It's a good way to enjoy things along the way. And really, you can take that opportunity to go and learn something new or go and travel or try a new project. Yeah. And get that downtime too. I think when you think about the fact that you've been in school for at least 12 years, maybe, you know, 15 or 16, if you do university or TAFE or something afterwards, and then go straight into a job and then you're only going to get four weeks leave a year, it's not enough to unwind. And we're not designed and nor do we need to work that hard. We're not in the fields every day, most of us. There's no point in living a life, I think, 
that is just endless work and then two lots of two weeks off a year where you only just feel good on about day 11 <laughs> and then you suddenly got to go back to work like that just seems like an awful way to have to spend an entire life it takes quite a lot of time to relax I mean I took for the first time since I'd left high school actually had a five-week holiday this summer and I still was in like, oh, I need to work, I need to be productive during the first couple of weeks. And suddenly by like week three and four, I was finally relaxed and enjoying the break and being able to switch my mind off from things. But it does take quite a bit of time to get out of that hustle and bustle mindset. It takes me a month each time. I'm the same. So I'm a very good campaign worker. This is why I did those mini retirements. I had five mini retirements in five years. I'm very good at like intense periods of work, but you know, like six to nine months. And then I just need to have a break. And, yeah, the first few weeks I'm exactly the same. You have this inherent need to be productive and this habit you've built. But the important thing to acknowledge is that downtime means you're going to be more effective when you come back. So I'm pretty sure that if I have six months off and work six months a year, I'll get the same quality output and volume as I do in 12 months. That's what I learned over those five years. I can do as much good because I'm so much sharper. I'm so much more engaged. My brain has had downtime, so it's more effective. It's like everything is. If you let your computer just keep whirring on and all the space fills up, it just slows down. You have to stop, reboot, clean it out, give it a chance to recover. We're exactly the same. We need that time to really rest and recuperate. And I guess that's the great thing about starting, even if you're not financially independent, if you start to learn about where you currently sit financially and start building your emergency fund and going, oh, how much would I actually need if I wanted to take a three-month or a six-month mini retirement? And then you can start planning that. You don't have to go straight for the... uh, I'm not going to stop working to a million dollars. I could actually, oh, I could stop working for three months once I have 10 or 20 or $30,000. Exactly. And I think this is the other thing that's really interesting about mini retirements. People always overestimate how much they'll need. Now, I mentioned my South America holiday that cost 30 grand. We went to the Galapagos Islands. We did Carnival in Rio. We did all the flash. They're the expensive places. Exactly. We were like, we are doing this properly. We are going and we're going to have fun. And it was worth every penny. But I have done several other mini retirements since then where I take a less lush view of life, let's say. You know, it's pretty standard. I'll go, we'll go and rent somewhere down near the beach and do just fun stuff together and, you know, explore something. Your costs drop when you take that time off because you're not paying for convenience anymore. You don't have to pay to do things in peak hour. You don't have to pay for assistance for stuff. You can take longer to look at things. So my costs on average drop by 25% to about 33% a third. So when you're budgeting for how much you need for those mini retirements, just remember, unless you're doing something that requires a lot of capital, like an expensive trip, or you want to you know, try an expensive hobby, like you want to go learn to be a pilot or something like that, unless you're doing something like that, your costs are more likely to drop than to rise. So you might find you need less than you even think. Absolutely. And Lacey, if someone's really interested about these concepts, I know we haven't prescribed anything. We haven't said, this is how you reach financial independence. You need to put this much money in each year and this is how much you take out because I think it's something, I think there's a lot of good in doing this research yourself and finding your own why and figuring out your own plan and learning about all this. But if you had to give five different resources for listeners to start with, just as that starting point for their exploration, what would they be? So first one is a very old book and it's a short book, but it's called The Richest Man in Babylon. So if you just don't get how this all works yet, it's like an Aesop's fable almost style story about how investing works. So I think that's a really good starting point for people who don't get the general concept because if you have those stories, suddenly when you read everything else, it'll fit into that. You go, oh, that's the technical stuff behind it. So I, I feel like that's a really good 
place to start. I will also add Rich Dad, Poor Dad because it was a pivotal book for me. Now, I'm going to qualify that with, I don't think Robert Kiyosaki is someone you should necessarily listen to long term, okay? So he's a bit of a crackpot, bluntly, sorry. I wonder if I can get done for defamation for that. I'm sure I can't because he's had a lot of um, evidence. He's an unusual person. I wouldn't be watching videos of him or following any of his advice, and it is important to note that he sold his face to be on this Rich Dad education, which he has nothing to do with. But the book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, is a very good explanation of how cash flow works. And it's, again, got lots of examples. And if you have any interest in property investing, it has really good techniques that have served me very well in it. So just that one book by Robert Kiyosaki, and don't follow him anywhere else. Um, So those two are books that I think are great. Now, I've got to also plug lots of female authors that I think you should read. I do think Shareplicity 1 and 2 are absolutely worth looking at for people who are fascinated by shares. The explanations are very clear, uh, very practical, and they're nice, short, succinct reads, which I think is excellent. I really like Wonder Woman's Guide to Money by Natasha Janssen's as well. And I do think Your Money or Your Life is another good philosophical one for people. So that's three female authors that I think are worth checking out. I've got a pile of about 20. I would love to share all of them. (laughs) So those are the ones that are top of mind as I've thought about this. Uh, And of course, I have to add number six is go check out Money School. It's totally self-interested, that one. (laughs) (laughs) It is a great book. And I have personally read that one and most of the other ones you've mentioned as well. So I'll definitely include those in the show notes. And Something else I wanted to mention is on your Money School website, you do have a really cool calculator. Oh, yeah, thank you. This is um, the result of some funding that I got from the West Australian Department of Jobs, Tourism, Science and Innovation, an interesting combination of those four departments. They do an innovation voucher and I won one of those a couple of years ago when I was doing the book because what I wanted was an online calculator because I know I've talked about how I didn't need a goal, but a lot of people want a goal and they want to know how long it's going to take. So I wanted a calculator that, first of all, didn't keep anyone's personal financial information. So that was really important to me because I think that's what holds a lot of people back. You don't want to type in your super balance and you don't want to type in how much you've got in your saving account and, you know, because that's really personal information and I personally don't want mine out there. So I wanted something that people could use and access and get a number out of without having to put any details. So you can actually use the calculator and get an age at which you'll become financially independent based on some assumptions and data you enter. There's about 14 data points. So get that list together before you get and play with the calculator. But it'll give you a number for when you'll become financially independent. You don't have to put in an email or anything at that point. If you want a detailed report, you do need to put in an email. But the system behind it clears the case so I don't keep any of your numbers. I don't even know it. So if you called me up and went, I didn't get my report, can you send it? I'd be like, sorry, you've got to do it again. And that is, for me, also a data security thing. So anyone who's a hacker listening to this, I don't keep any of that stuff. Don't even bother. Okay, I don't, I don't want to know it. I don't want to, you know, like I'm happy to talk to people about their individual situations and say, oh, well, you might get something out of these resources, but I don't want to keep your personal data. So that's been really fun. So building that calculator happened at the same time as the book. So if you read the book, you'll see the calculations that we go through worked out in the book. But this calculator just allows you to do it without having to do the maths yourself, which some people I think prefer. Well, if you don't want to follow the recipe in the book, then go use the calculator or do both, whichever you prefer. I think it's a great tool to just sort of put it into perspective, what your scenario could look like. And maybe if you make a few tweaks and changes, what that could also look like down the track. 
Yeah, and it, it does help you give a bit of a goal. So if you see like, oh, wow, I'm going to be 103. Oh, darn, that's not going to work. Okay, well, what can I do differently? It might be enough to help you motivate yourself. And it also might surprise you. I've had a few people who have come back and gone, wow, I've, I'm apparently going to be financially independent in seven years. I hadn't even realized I was on track. And they've made fairly conservative assumptions when I've spoken to them about it. So it's possibly reasonable if everything carries on. So that's a really good motivating factor, I think, for people too. And just sometimes it's nice to know where you're at. I think I might be a bit unusual for reaching fire, but just bumbling along to get to that point without a specific goal <laughs> maybe I'm a bit odd <laughs> oh well it's good to be different isn't it <laughs> well I don't have much choice yes no you're exactly right it is <laughs> it'd be pretty boring if we're all the same but that's I think the point there's so many different voices if you find one you connect with great but if you haven't found one you haven't connected with yet it's not because of you it's just you haven't found the right one yet keep looking for people whose opinions you're interested in and whose trains of thought make sense to you so you want to keep going Absolutely. And I'll include every resource because there have been a few mentioned in this episode today in the show notes. So I really encourage you to check that out and Lacey's book, Money School and her website. So that is a great first point of call on your journey. And Lacey, thank you so much for joining me on the How To Money podcast today and sharing some of your wisdom and tips with my listeners. It's been awesome. Thanks so much for having me, Kate. Thank you for listening to this episode of the How To Money Podcast. If you enjoyed this, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and send any questions our way via www.howtomoney.online. You can also catch us on Twitter and Instagram at howtomoneyaus and we'd love to hear from you. You've been listening to the How To Money Podcast.